This is The Blood Doctor Show. On Wednesday. And an exciting Wednesday because yesterday we received news, some of the best news for some of us in years, that EA Sports is finally bringing back college football. Excitement, excitement all around. We are finally going to be able to play as our favorite college football team. Some of us, I still play college football uh, 2013 on my Xbox 360 so that I still have. So some of us have still been playing for years, but finally we're going to get to play with you know updated rosters, updated offenses. Maybe we'll get the college football playoff in the game. There's going to be a lot of exciting stuff that we haven't had for years. It's going to be a while. It's not coming right now. But some, some truly, truly exciting news for all of us. Because honestly, I mean, even though I think that, um, I think ultimately amateur sports and the whole idea of amateur sports is stupid. I think that college players should be paid and all of those things. And I think that we need to get that ironed out. Um, you know, I still root for my teams. You know, there are still things, it's difficult um, to you know, eliminate everything immediately. Like, we need to fix college sports, right? We need to change the way that, that college sports operate. We need to stop letting coaches be millionaires off the backs of unpaid athletes, many of whom do not get to play professionally and do not get to make any money from the stardom that they had in college. Um, we need to fix that system for sure. There's no question about that. But it is nonetheless exciting to get to play, you know, a a new college football game. I mean, there's no way that that's not going to be exciting and fun for all of us. One thing that is interesting that I will say is that they haven't ironed out the, the, the paying player stuff yet, paying players for their likeness and all that. And that is an issue. Um, you know, someone asked what features they wanted to see in the game. And my man, Michael Dunlap at Dunlap sports on Twitter said, I want to see players paid for their likeness usage in this game. And he's right. That's the most important thing that needs to happen here before this game is built, before it's completed, you know, whether they build it off of Madden or whatever it is they choose to do. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, the guys are getting paid for their likeness. No more of this stuff where, you know, they're able to profit off of college football players um, and, you know, the players themselves aren't aren't able to profit. It's bullshit. It needs to stop. Amateurism in athletics is complete horseshit. The NCAA is complete horseshit. It's essentially a system that was set up in order to control the way college athletics work, but they have no actual jurisdiction. Like... The NCAA has no actual authority. It's not like they are a government organization. It's not like they actually have been given power to make these decisions or to fine or suspend players. The NCAA is just an organization that was created that the conferences themselves listen to. They actually don't have to. There's no reason. They could simply choose to opt out of all of these things, but they don't. And so it'll be interesting to see how that happens going forward. So far, the game, many people on Twitter pointed out, it says EA Sports College Football. It does not say NCAA College Football. So there's some possibility that they may be licensing the schools themselves without actually licensing the NCAA. I would love that. I mean, we should really just get rid of the NCAA. 
Honestly, the NCAA does not need to exist. Again, it's not a government body. It's not sanctioned by anyone. It was just an organization that was created to control college athletics and control the college athletes themselves and create some sort of bullshit thing about the integrity of amateur athletics and, you know, lack of money, blah, blah, blah. It's bullshit. This is essentially essentially a form of modern-day slavery. I mean, these kids make billions of dollars for their parent schools, for the administrators, for the coaches, and then they see basically none of that. And people say, oh, well, they get an education, and they get food, and they get locker rooms. So fucking what? That doesn't set them up for the future of their lives. Pro players get those things on top of their salaries, and so should these kids. When you're making billions of dollars for a school, when you're making millions of dollars for your coach, and when your coach is able to use your successes to negotiate a raise, then absolutely under no, there's no question that those guys should be getting paid. And I'm not saying that the schools themselves should be paying them. I'm not trying to say that schools should be paying recruits. That's not what this is all about. And I think that a lot of people misunderstand what the whole point of this thing is. It's not about paying recruits. It's not about, you know, um, you know, my school has the most money, Oregon has the most money, so they can pay the most to free agent recruits. It's not about that. It's about guys being able to be paid for their likeness for playing. Okay. So like I'm the star at Texas Tech and all the businesses around Texas Tech want to pay me to represent their product and, you know, license, you know, my face and everything. That's what it's about. Okay. It's about, you know, every star player of every team getting to sell their likeness and make money from it, getting to sell their autographs or whatever the case may be. And so the whole idea that, well, we'll just have it be like the pros where only the big schools will get the players. Well, sure. In some cases, the best players will go to the best schools, but guess what? That's already happening anyway. But I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you are looking at being the backup quarterback at Alabama and having no opportunity to potentially start for three years, maybe you'll get one year to start, but there could be three years where you won't start. Versus going to like Missouri, where you know you could start for four years and you could make money for four years as a star of that program. Even if you don't win as much, you're still the star recruit of that program and you will get paid by businesses in the area, by what there are plenty of ways to be to capitalize on that. And if the opportunity is there to start for four years and be very good and make a lot of money as a starter, Versus sitting and having no marketability, you're going to see some guys not go to the top programs and instead go to programs that are on the periphery. And so that is, it's good for the sport. It's going to create more uh, recruit diversity, diversity in terms of they're going to go to different schools. You know, you're going to have, sure, you're still going to have certain guys bunched up. I want to play at Alabama. My top marketability is being a star safety at Alabama, blah, blah, et cetera. Obviously, those things are still going to occur, but they occur anyway. That's not going to change anything. But what will change is the fact that, you know, the state of Missouri, you know, the school Alabama you know, has more money for football than the school Missouri. But that doesn't necessarily mean that businesses in Missouri aren't willing to splurge on, you know, 
paying a guy to show up at every car, you know, uh, car sale opening and the opening of every business. Like you could make a lot of money doing advertisements and all the things that we see these guys do. And again, sure, being at the biggest national program gives you some national advertisement possibility. I understand all of those things. I get all of that. But my point is that when you create an avenue to more money by by opening up the potential to be a star of any number of teams, instead of limiting it to the only way to make money is to start one year at Alabama and then get drafted in the NFL or, you know, start one year at Clemson or whatever, whatever the hell the case may be. You understand my point. So there is truly an advantage to the allowing guys, college players to be paid because they're just not going to be paid by the school. That's not, that's not how it goes. It doesn't make any sense to to look at it that way because that's not what's going to happen it will just be your marketability as a player for any individual institution and again i just think what people are missing is that when you can start for multiple years at any position instead of you know being a guy who's a backup for several years and then starting as a junior or a senior because there's tons of other talent in the pipeline those things will give guys marketability options marketability be marketability options my god it is a complicated thing to say some words when you're stoned what can i say in any case those guys will be able to change the game for themselves especially when you have guys who are like borderline nfl players like you're gonna want to go to the place that you can start as much as possible you know you'll just make more money that way and it will help set up your life for the future especially if you were a star star at a small college town you know, then you go become a real estate agent in that small town and you sell houses forever. There are just, there are benefits. And I'm way off topic from where I wanted to be. But in any case, EA Sports College Football is coming back. And the most crucial thing that can happen, the most important thing that needs to happen, is that any player who is represented in this game is paid for being there. And let's use their names. Like, why are we doing the whole QB7 and then you generate a roster of fake names? Let's get rid of that stuff. Let's just pay the players for their likeness and let's move on from this. Let's just put the amateur athletics nonsense in the past. Let swimmers who go to the Olympics make money. Let any, you know, college World Series heroes make Just whatever. Just whoever has the ability let it go. This is the crazy thing about America is supposedly we're this free market country that like loves the idea of the free market and letting everyone let the market decide the price. But then when college players try to let the market decide the price, suddenly it's like, oh, oh, no, oh, oh, we can't do that. It's not a free market in this country. It's a rigged market. It's a free market for the rich and it's a rigged market for everyone else. And that's exactly what this situation is. It's just another example of how capitalism is not exactly what you think it is. And we need to move as much of our economy away from satisfying rich people as we possibly can and move it towards helping all of us. And that's an EA college sports football rant with a little socialism on top. But it is exciting. It is an exciting time to be able to play college sports. And I'm going to tell you another exciting idea that I have in general for uh, basketball, for the NBA. And it's not actually my idea, but it's something someone else came up with that I want to see implemented. So Josh Eberly, who is um, on the Dunks and Discourse podcast, which I absolutely love, 
Um, he was complaining on Twitter about how much he hates the fouling at the end of games, specifically when a team is um, up by three and essentially they foul a team to make them shoot two free throws um, instead of having an opportunity at a triple. So it's just essentially, you know, if they're in the bonus and they can send them to the line. Um, some teams do it. Some teams don't. And essentially, it's it's sort of an act of cowardice. You're not giving them the opportunity to shoot the triple. You're not playing defense. Um, but what frustrates a lot of people is essentially that at the end of games, basketball often devolves into, you know, a free throw competition. It's sort of a free throw and three point competition. You shoot a three, you foul them. They shoot a free throw. You shoot a three again. You know, it's just back and forth. Um, and it's not really basketball at the end of games. No one's really playing defense. It's just a modified sort of competition where a lot of points are scored. Now, those of us who bet the over may love the way that those games end, truthfully, because sometimes you get 10 to 15 points in the last minute of a game where you otherwise would not get that just because of, you know, the increased number of possessions and, you know, the rapid nature of those possessions. But just as a fan of basketball, it's frustrating watching teams essentially opt out of playing defense in favor of, you know, playing the free throw game and, you know, just we'll shoot a three, we'll foul them real quick. It's, it's obnoxious. Um, and there is an option to end this, and it's called the Elam ending. Now, this was created by a guy named Nick, Nick Elam, and it is used in the basketball tournament, and it was used in the NBA All-Star game last year. The All-Star game, remember the All-Star game that ruled, that everyone loved so much, um, that was one of the most fun, if not the best NBA All-Star game ever? I loved that game so much, I think that everyone did. And it was a phenomenal game because of the Elam ending, because the Elam ending essentially takes away your ability to play that free throw game and forces you to just play good hard nose defense. And I'm going to read here real quick um, because I don't I don't know how to de describe this any better way. I'm just going to read this paragraph from this is the tournament.com. This is the basketball tournament TBT and from the tournament.com slash Elam dash ending. I'm just going to read real quick their description of the Elam ending here. So I'm reading this right now designed to preserve a more natural end of game finish. The Elam ending calls for the game clock to be shut off at the first dead ball under four minutes in the fourth quarter or second half. A target score is then established by adding eight points to the leading team score. For example, if the score is 80 to 72, the two teams will play until someone reaches 88. With no game clock in play, trailing teams are allowed to focus on getting stops and buckets rather than intentionally fouling. So that's the description that the website gives. And again, what it does is you can't play the free throw game because the game ends at a score rather than ending at a specific time. So you have to just play defense. Now, in certain cases, this means a team is up eight and we've established and you know a score that's eight points ahead. Then they go on an 8-0 run and the game is just over. You know, there are some scenarios where it's fairly anticlimactic. But, you know, NBA blowouts are pretty anticlimactic. And a lot of playoff games in the last few years have just been the home team blows out the other team. And then and then what? Now, the bubble was different. The bubble was different. There were a lot of really good, really competitive games. But we can't look to the bubble for the future because now that we actually have a somewhat competent uh, you know, uh, administration, we're probably going to be able to deal with um, the the pandemic a little bit more. And we're probably going to get a vaccine at some point. So I really doubt that we're going to be in, you know, basketball bubbles forever. So that's not going to be instructive of what the future 
of playoff basketball will be. And if we go back to the home court advantage thing, I mean, imagine what's going to happen when fans can come back to arenas. Number one, probably every arena in the league is going to fill up, even for bad teams. People are going to be so excited to go to the games again. There's probably going to be a miniature boost in attendance for a while. And these guys who've been now, they've been playing without fans for like a year and a half. It's going to suddenly be raucous in these arenas and the home court advantage is going to be very real for a little while when fans are back. And so when that happens again, you're going to see some blowouts and, you know, that just occurs. But one way to prevent that is by implementing this Elam ending, because here's the thing, even if you're behind, when you set a target score and there's no free throw game and there's there's no clock, it just you're just going to. You have to play defense or you lose. And, you know, we've all seen teams go on runs. We know how games can go. And you're just, you're going to simply sit there. It just results in teams playing as much defense as they possibly can because that is built into the game. It's baked in. You have to play defense. And given that defense becomes so much more important in this scenario because you can't just outscore someone, you have to stop them from scoring. You can't just, oh, we're going to trade baskets from them and we'll make threes and they'll make twos and eventually we'll catch up. There's none of that because you will lose. So you have to play defense. So if you are truly just a fan of offensive basketball and you love the, you know, the Nets, like that's your team, I just want to watch, you know, people run up and down the court and play track meet basketball, then you might hate the Elam ending. But if you like actually watching really good technical basketball and you like watching stuff that isn't, you know, again, with all the late game fouling and the, you know, hack a shack and we're just trying to come up with the way. If you just want to watch basketball as it should be, then that's what the Elam ending is. It's really the best thing that I've seen. And the thing is the end of the all-star game was awesome. Like you might fear that, you know, the way that the Elam ending operates makes games less exciting, but it doesn't because number one, there's always a game winning shot. There's always a, a, a shot that ends the game. Even if it's, we're up 10 and we hit the shot to now go up 13, it's still, there's always a game winning shot. It ends the game, which is always a cool moment, no matter what it is. And it also creates the ability for, Hey, we are down 16 right now. And they are eight points away. We've got to just play defense right now. We've got to go on a run. And it just creates this mental, you can do it. And the thing is, is that time is never against you. In the NBA, you're so worried about, okay, well, the clock is ticking down and we've got to run this possession as quickly as possible. And I need to get this shot off. And, you know, we need to get a two for one here. And there are just so many elements of, you know, time is against us. With the Elam ending, that's gone. All that is here is... If we execute on offense and on defense, we will win this game. And when you have close games, it's even more so. If it's a one-point game and you've added eight, well, now there it is. You know, whoever scores the next three, four, five baskets or whatever is going to win. And you, you're you just looking at this scenario like every single stop right now is 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 so crucial because I can't just go down and potentially just get another bucket because maybe this stop is, you know, the one that ends the game. You know, if they hit the target score, there's no ability for me to go tie it. So there's no, you know, we're down three with 1.5 seconds left. Maybe we'll get a miracle shot. You've got to play defense and there's no coming back from the target score being reached. So 
It just changes the way the game is played. And even last year, it was awesome. LeBron took like a 45-footer. Not that. He took like a 40-footer, though, or something. 35 feet. He fired from almost half court to try to win the game last year. Like, any damn near made. It was just an awesome, awesome game. And I know that it was in the wake of Kobe Bryant passing. And that had a lot to do with why they made adjustments. And, you know, I understand all of that. But if you watch games that are played with the Elam ending... It just preserves the flow of the actual game and it prevents it from devolving into not basketball. I mean, the free throw and three point thing at the end of games, it's not basketball. It's a shooting contest. And, And that's fine if people prefer it that way. Like if the average fan just prefers that, then there's really nothing that I can say. Like if people just prefer the shooting contest thing and that's how they want games to end. And, you know, for whatever gambling purposes or whatever they want that, then I'm not going to I'm not going to argue that. But if you really hate the foul stuff at the end of games, which I really do, and I would prefer that, you know, people played defense and just played the game. I think the Elam ending is really the answer, and I'm not sure that we're ever going to see it. I'm not saying that anyone is, you know, that it's going to be implemented in the NBA. I don't think that that's necessarily even possible at this point. But I would encourage you to check out the basketball tournament and just watch those games played with the Elam ending. And obviously the NBA implementation would have to be different. You couldn't do eight points with four minutes because NBA teams will score way more than that on the regular. But the point is you could find a way to implement the Elam ending and just prevent the, you know, the end of these games from devolving into, uh, you know, a foul contest where we're walking up and down the court and the referees are handing the ball for the free throws and blah. And it's just not as exciting. This is a way to prevent that. So if you really hate it, I encourage you to check out the basketball tournament, check out the Elam ending, see what that's all about, because truthfully, that is the answer to that problem. And now for a moment, I'm just going to get on my high fucking horse because I can. And I'm going to talk about something that I love to talk about. And that is the fact that Luka Doncic is now 1 and 8 against the Phoenix Suns and DeAndre Ayton. 1 and 8. 1 and 8. 1 and 8 against the Suns with Ayton. 1 and 8. 1 win, 8 losses. 1 and 8. In case you're keeping score at home, that's not good at all. That's really terrible. And it's really phenomenal because everyone throughout the NBA has dragged us for years. For taking Aiton over Doncic. Everyone has, oh, you, you know, you made a tremendous mistake and you ruin your franchise when you fuck up this decision and blah, 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 all these things. And Luca has had a better career than Aiton so far. There's no question about that. And, you know, he's probably still always going to be a better player. I'm not trying to discount that. But there's a difference between being a better player and being a winning player and especially being a winning player in the context of a specific situation. And the simple fact of the matter is that Luka Doncic loses when he plays against DeAndre Ayton. When DeAndre Ayton defends Luka Doncic, Luka Doncic can't get around him. Luka Doncic, for his career, shoots like 26% from three against the Suns. And by the way, he's only a 32% career three-point shooter anyway. Luka Doncic is really good, but he's completely fucking overrated. Okay, he is completely fucking overrated. There's a gigantic difference between saying he's overrated and he's a bad player. No one thinks that Luca's a bad player. No one thinks that he's, you know, like just a, a drain or whatever. But I do think that he's a lot closer to Russell Westbrook than anyone want to give him fucking credit for. Russell Westbrook for his career is like a 30 percent three point shooter. So he's a little bit better. But Russell Westbrook is also a way more explosive athlete. Okay. 
Russell Westbrook is also a better defender. Luka has his moments on defense. He blocks a shot every now and then. But for the most part, he's, you know, nothing, nowhere near an elite defender. And, you know, I'm sorry, but just because, I mean, I said this on Twitter, Luka Doncic is basically Russell Westbrook shooting with James Harden's shot profile. You know, a bunch of people are like, well, they're step backs and they're difficult. How does missing step backs make it okay? Like, how is, well, the shot is more difficult, so it's okay that he misses them. So he's taking bad shots, and it's okay that he's missing them because they're bad shots? Like, how is that an acceptable thing? Well, with the team construct and the way that they do things, and what, like, what, you've got one of the best coaches in the NBA in Rick Carlisle. I keep hearing how phenomenally good Chris Stapps Porzingis is. I keep being told how the Mavs have this incredibly deep roster full of role players. I keep hearing how the Josh Richardson-Seth Curry swap is supposed to be the most phenomenal thing for Luka Doncic, and yet they're 8 and fucking 13. Maybe Luka just isn't as good as you think he is. And maybe, I said coming into the season, I thought he would win MVP. I thought the narrative would, was set up perfectly for him. And he has sucked so badly, and the team has sucked so badly, that he's nowhere near it. And, you know, you can sit here and talk about his counting stats all you want. But when you have the ball in your hands literally every single second that you're on the court, you're going to get a lot of points and assists. Sure, he gets rebounds. He's tall. We still don't know how much rebounds matter. They certainly matter with DeAndre Ayton when they're fucking offensive, and he changes the game by getting four offensive rebounds and, you know, putting up eight damn points on those offensive rebounds. That shit fucking matters. No one seems to care about that, but Luka Doncic gets empty calorie rebounds because all of his four teammates run away from him so he can start the fast break, and somehow that makes him a prodigy. I'm just saying fucking judge these guys by what they actually do. If you want to look at DeAndre Ayton's advanced numbers and say that his net rating isn't good, fine. You'll find that that correlates with playing with Chris Paul and Devin Booker, and their net ratings aren't good when they're all three playing together, and they have to figure the shit out, and they're working on it. But somehow, the fact that Luka Doncic's shooting percentage is in the tank doesn't matter. People are like, well, the Mavs offense goes to shit when Luka's on the bench. And that's true. But the same thing has always been true of Ricky Rubio. Ricky Rubio can't shoot either. I I don't know what to tell you. Like, Luka Doncic gets credit for being this phenomenal player. And he's very good, but he can't shoot the basketball. And until he can actually shoot the basketball at a level, people need to stop talking about him. Well, he's like James Harden. No, he's fucking not. James Harden is 55 wins unto himself. He's a top five offense unto himself. He's an MVP candidate all the time. Luka has never actually risen to that level and was prematurely granted it. And yet he's still young and all of these things. But also, if we're going to sit here and paint him with this brush of he's the most phenomenal player of all time and the best prospect since LeBron and all these other things that people have said, well, then we need to take a look at what he's actually doing and criticize it properly. And as good as he is, there are a lot of flaws in his game. And a lot of this stuff can be solved by actually shooting the ball well. And he still does not show a propensity to be an actually really good shooter. Maybe he's just not one. And then he is Russell Westbrook minus the athleticism. And that's a problem. So if you're Luka Doncic, what you do to solve me sitting here saying this shit is you actually go improve your shooting percentages. 32% for his career from three. This is his third season. 
that's not like a small sample size. That's not like, oh, well, you know, it's his first, it's, it's three years and he's had the ball in his hands all the time. So there's ample opportunity and you can sit here and tell me it's his shot profile and shot selection and the way the team runs. Well, then he needs to be better at it because there are plenty of guys who can run their team and, and you know, carry the ball. And I mean, Kevin Durant can shoot, you know, the lights out while running an offense and taking crazy shots. And if you're going to sit here and say, well, we can't compare him to Kevin Durant. Well, everyone was doing that. Everyone wanted to sit here and say he was a top player and he was a top MVP candidate and that, you know, Kevin Durant maybe wouldn't be. Who knows what he'll be coming back from his Achilles, but we know what Luka Doncic is. And the simple fact of the matter is we actually haven't been paying attention to what Luka Doncic is because he's not nearly as good as we've been acting like he is. And I'm as guilty of this as everyone, right? We get caught up in the reactionary culture and you watch one season or one playoff series and you're like, oh, it's a new game now and things have changed. And I'm not saying that he's not going to be good. But what I'm saying is that when you're shooting 32% from three and you have the ball all the time and your team is eight and 13 and you're not winning games and you're the focal point of everything and Sure, coronavirus and sure injuries. Every team is suffering through that right now. It just everyone is going through it. The simple fact of the matter is, is that we have all looked at Luca like he's on a level that he's not, and maybe he will get there, but he is not there yet. And so we need to stop looking at him as someone who's just going to bomb you away from distance all the time. Maybe he makes a miracle shot here and there. Consistency matters more. And all of the comparisons to James Harden and all of the ragging of James Harden and the trashing of James Harden and, you know, I'd rather have Luca than this dude. I mean, it just, he's he's become overrated. And Aiton is extremely underrated. And I, I have, you can ask my man Keith Strader this. What up, Keith? Looking forward to having you on again soon. I have said the whole time, I had always wanted DeAndre Aiton. Okay. I said that I was probably wrong about that, but here's the one way that I can be right about that. If Aiton continues his dominance over Luka when they eventually meet in the playoffs, and the simple fact of the matter is that the way that those two match up and the way the Suns are constructed and the way the Mavs are constructed means that the Suns are always better and always beat the Mavericks, then we made the right choice. What really matters is competition for a ring. And as much as everyone will sit here and say that Dallas is way ahead of us because of their playoff run last year, they're not doing shit right now. And we're in the driver's seat for not only being in the playoffs, but missing competition for the play-in. We're in great position, and they are having their fans on Reddit call for the coach to be fired. Okay? So we need to chill on Luka. We need to look at what he actually is and what he could be. But stop conflating those two things because they're not the same. And that's just the truth. And the Suns can be extremely vindicated. One and eight, man, that's going to be difficult for Luka to change versus Aiton. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it would be difficult for him to just change that around. And if that carries over into the playoffs, which I believe it will, especially because this iteration of the Suns is especially well built for the playoffs. This is especially a slow defensive grinder half court team. I don't see a reason that the Suns shouldn't be looked at right now as maybe having made the right choice. And by the way, go look at how Mavericks fans on Reddit feel. They're starting to say the same thing. There are Mavericks fans who are out there saying, 
we should have taken Aiton. And by the way, I'm not sure that they're wrong about that. If Luka's going to shoot 32% from three for his whole career in this NBA, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. And people can trash me for that. And maybe he'll get way better and it won't matter. But I've never been a Russell Westbrook guy. And I'm certainly not a less athletic Russell Westbrook guy. Okay? I'm not afraid of the Pillsbury Doughboy. Get in the gym. Lose weight. Don't look like me. Don't show up looking like me. Don't show up looking like a podcast host. Show up looking like an NBA player. Make, you know, at least 35, 36% from three. And then we'll talk about this dude being an MVP candidate. But he's not there right now. And that's what it is. Now, I say all of that to say, D-book. D-fucking-book. The man. The myth. The legend. The monster in the minds of Dallas Mavericks fans. They fucking hate Devin Booker. And they should. Because he continues to cause nightmares for them. He continues to be clutch. And as many, I see people saying, Devin Booker's not actually that good of a three-point shooter. He's average for his career, but he is clutch as shit. Takes a lot of threes. He needs to shoot a little bit better, but he's not 32%. And he doesn't brick him in the clutch. And for all the shit that people want to give Devin Booker about defense or shooting percentages not being whatever, Devin Booker has clutch in his veins, ice water in his veins, Kobe knew it, Kobe saw it, Kobe loved him, and uh, Devin Booker is the closest thing to Kobe in this NBA, okay? That is the truth. He is the closest thing to Kobe in this current NBA. So, take that for what you will, it's the truth. Breaking the hearts of everyone in Dallas yet again with an absolutely perfect game winner. Devin Booker is a monster, and I cannot wait till we get to watch his playoff heroics this year. I'm going to call it now. Devin Booker is getting a game winner in the playoffs this year. He's going to get at least one game winner in the playoffs. Got to happen. I mean, he's just built for that. And the Suns are built to handle close games. This Mavericks game is the first time I've been sitting here saying, why aren't we winning close games? We've got to learn to win close games. We can't win close games. We've got to learn how. And we are finally executing down the stretch and we are closing games out. And as we learn to do that, as this team learns from Chris Paul how to win, this is a scary team, especially come playoff time. Booker is Kobe. It's true. Clippers-Nets game. This game was fun. Um, It was just back and forth really the whole way. It started really slow, and I couldn't believe it actually got to the over. Like, it was way under to start. Like, it looked like it wasn't going to get there, and then it just was just back and forth, buckets, 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 buckets. It started being completely different from the game that we expected and ended up being exactly the game that we expected. The most interesting thing to me, though, is that even though it was a super high-scoring game, like, the Nets put in effort on defense. Like, I'm not saying the Nets played good defense. Like, nobody's going to sit here and say that the Nets are going to play good defense because at no point in this season is that going to occur. But, like, they were, they you know, Harden made some plays, you know, KD made some plays. Kyrie wasn't, you know, completely out of his depth. Like, they just, I mean, they were playing hard. And, you know, they still got scored on a bunch. And, you know, the Clippers nearly, you know, won the game. It, and the Nets did close it out and, and nearly blew it down the stretch, though. But, you know, these are the games they built for, right? If you're just going to play buckets with the Nets and you're just going to go back and forth and, you know, just your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, and you're all just going to go back and forth and play no defense either way, then ultimately the Nets have an opportunity to win those games. That's what they're built for. They're built to beat you in the shootout, and that's fine. But if you're trying to actually slow them down and you're trying to make them work for everything, 
you're going to be able to, you know, go through them on defense. And so I think in a playoff series, you're still going to see, you know, I said on dunks and discourse that I think it's going to be at this point, I'm going to take Lakers and 76ers in a seven game final series. And that's where I'm at. I just don't think that I'm not trying to go off my prediction. My prediction, my preseason prediction was still heat. I'm just saying, if you asked me today what my prediction would be, I would go with the 76ers because I just don't think that as talented as the Nets are, I just, they can't stop anyone. And Joel Embiid is just going to be a nightmare for them that they won't know how to wake up from. And even Dwight Howard is going to cause them so many problems. So that's 48 minutes a game of absolute monstrous players that they simply don't have anyone to deal with. Maybe DeAndre Jordan can check Dwight Howard, but he certainly can't check Joel Embiid. And Embiid is going to be able to do literally anything he wants to. And if he's playing inside, the the Nets are just going to have no answer for that. And Sure, they're going to be able to score a ton and, you know, maybe they'll win a couple games going back and forth, but there are just going to be games where they're bricking too many shots because that's how basketball is. And they're just going to be games where one of them is off and they can't make enough shots and they're done at that point. Or if their role players can't play, they're done. It just, the you know, the Nets are not built to win a championship this season. If we're looking at the Nets, when people say, is it going to work? Or are the Nets going to be successful? If the judgment of that is winning a title this season, then the answer is no, they will not be. Now, if the answer is next season, after you've had the opportunity to go through an offseason, maybe use your mid-level, maybe sign a couple of ring-chasing veterans who are willing to take the minimum, yeah, next year, you're a contender. That's, I think, what the Nets are built for. And I think that, I hope that they understand that that's, that's their destiny. But this idea that they are going to just suddenly be contenders this season and they're going through everyone and they've got a great chance to beat the Lakers. I just don't see how, you know, I mean, I I just, I don't, I don't see for all of the, well, the Nets have three stars and the Lakers only have two. Okay. Well, but the Lakers actually have a competent bench. And I know that I'm the one who've, you know, I've said, you know, that I don't like what the Lakers did as much as everyone else. That's not because I don't like the Lakers team. I just don't like them as much as last season. I think that last season they made a little bit more sense than this season. That was just my personal opinion. It's not that the Lakers aren't the favorites. They still are. And I still just don't see a scenario in which I don't see how the Nets beat them. Because even then, even with Mark Gasol looking as bad as he does, you can't tell me that he's not going to be able to do damage against the Nets because the Nets literally have no one in the center. DeAndre Jordan is just not, he's not even a shell of himself. I mean, he's literally his name on a player who was never like him at this point. That's what it feels like. And so there's just no way to say that the, the, the playoffs are all about defense and half-court basketball and interior defense and as much clutch shot making in the, as the Nets have. They're not going to get swept. They're going to win, you know, every every Nets series, you know, however many series they play in, will be a minimum of six games. You know, there's no way you're just going to run the Nets out. And I do think that the level of defense they showed tonight, again, at least the level of defensive effort they showed tonight means that they might not get to bounce as early as some of us thought. You know, I thought that they were a potential for an early out and Jabari from Dunks and Discourse also agreed with me or he said it, I agreed with him, whatever it was. The point is that potential was there for the early out for the Nets. Like I have, I have been like a believer of, you know, maybe they're not even, I like, I just don't, I don't have any faith in the Nets at all is how I felt. Um, But watching this game, I thought, okay, they're going to be a little bit tougher because they're going to try on defense when they really have to, but I just don't think it'll be enough. So I don't think they'll get bounced early. I think they're still definitely a second round or conference finals team, but I do think that, you know, I, I do believe that they are, um, 
they're not going to get through the 76ers. You know, I, I don't think the early upset will be there. I think the upset, if it's an upset at that point, I think the 76ers will get it done. That's just my belief. Um, and then as far as the Clippers go, you know, I mean, it's just, it's kind of the same old stuff. You know, some, they're supposed to be a really good defensive team. They're supposed to be able to defend anyone. They're supposed to be really clutch. And it's just, you know, some nights the Clippers look really good. Some nights the Clippers look, eh. And, you know, this game, they, it's just, it's really, I don't know. I, I just, I, I feel about the Clippers how I feel about the Bucks, And maybe that's unfair because the Clippers have only been together one season, but maybe just the way they talked about it. I, I don't know. I feel about the Bucks that I'm just not going to believe anything until I see it in the playoffs. I'm done talking about this in the regular season. I'm simply at the point where all that matters to me is the playoffs. And now I'm of the same opinion on the Clippers. And I know that may be unfair. They were only together for the one season. But the the failure last year was so just generally unacceptable. And so you just, it just looks so bad that there was just no way for me to ignore that. There's no way for me to say like, the first year the Bucks failed, Giannis was so young, and he fell to Kawhi, and we grew to respect Kawhi so much, and you know the Clippers gave up so much and talked so much, and it just felt so right. And then they didn't lose to an eventual champion; they lost to the Nuggets, who weren't really on the same level as the Lakers and were themselves just an up and coming team. So it just—I've got to see it. I still believe that they pose the biggest threat to the Lakers. The Jazz are making a really good argument at this point because they are unstoppable right now. But the thing about the Jazz is that they've had a lot of like regular season runs where they're incredibly good. And so maybe, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they're good or maybe it's just like you forget how hard it is to score on Rudy Gobert in the middle of the season. And, you know, he just has these defensive runs and now that Donovan Mitchell is better, it's easier. You know, it's hard to say. So I still think the Clippers pose the biggest threat, but I'm not going to sit here and like, when I see a middling game like this where they don't play that good and they lose, it's kind of like, yeah, well, I mean, it's the Clippers, you know, until we really see them take the next step, you know, I'm just there in that pack of they've got to do it. They've got to prove it to show it to us. And then the closing game of the night, Celtics Warriors, I had a few thoughts on this one um, that I thought were interesting um, before I want to talk about two quick trade rumors. The Celtics-Warriors game, the thing it, it made me feel most is that it's sad because the Warriors are good right now. Like, they're a decent team. And you can just see that with Klay Thompson there, they're basically back to a contender level. I mean, let's say that Klay was 90% of what Klay had been. Right, because it was only the one injury before he re-injured himself this year. So let's say that Clay came back and he had been ninety percent of himself, or even eighty percent of himself to start the season, and then got better. And you know, let's say he was still a really good shooter, a solid defender, maybe not quite what he was, but just add another reliable shooter to this team with the somewhat development of Wiggins. You know, Ubre has been terrible. They probably wouldn't even have Ubre right now, truthfully. Um, if you if you just swapped out. Clay Thompson for Ubre and what a black hole Ubre has been. And you put Clay Thompson there, this team is 
suddenly like has like two more wins, probably maybe three more. They're so much better. And they're basically in that kind of dark horse contender status level, you know, dependent on how healthy Draymond and Clay can get by the playoffs and Steph really too. And, you know, how much Wiggins can fit in and how much Wiseman can grow. You know, this team would really be a contender. And it's just kind of a bummer because, you know, I don't I don't want to get into the whole Clay Thompson, Rodney Magruder thing. That stuff was funny, but it was weird. But we all miss Clay on the court, as funny as he may be as an analyst. You know, we miss him on the court, and it just sucks to see the Warriors kind of muddling through, and we see a great team that's basically been taken out of it because of an injury. And I just think if you swapped Clay Thompson for Kelly Oubre, like the incredible black hole that Kelly is, the incredible upgrade that Clay Thompson would be, this team would be so much better, and it would just be better for the league to have, you know, yet another team that could provide you know, could give the Lakers fits. You know, if if the Nets could give the Lakers fits, surely Steph, Clay, Dre, Wiggins, and Wiseman could, you know, at least bother the Lakers. You know, if we if we believe that about the Nets, we would certainly believe it about the Warriors. And it's just a bummer to see that, you know, they're just missing, you know, the one other thing that makes them go. You know, the Warriors are interesting because, you know, there's no LeBron, there's no Anthony Davis, there's no there's no unbelievable player who, you know, defies physics and you know, is just on another level. It's just incredible basketball players who, you know, when fit together, become so much better than, you know, the sum of their parts, essentially. They're like Voltron. And it sucks when, you know, Voltron is missing its, you know, arms or whatever the hell you want to call it. So, um, you know, and, and Clay would do, honestly help their defense too. And, you know, their defense has been bad with Wiseman on the court, but imagine that, you know, the wing defense is better, so he doesn't have to do as much inside, you know, of, of defending wings, getting to the rim and whatnot, or guys, you know, cutting while Kelly Oubre gets lost. It would just have a trickle effect that would make everything work better for the Warriors. And it's just a bummer to see that, you know, this is happening in the way that it is. Maybe the Warriors would have made a trade for another player who was more defensive-minded, you know, or maybe they still would have added Ubre. Who knows? But if you push Ubre down the bench again, the trickle effect is better. And it's just a bummer to see because the Warriors are, they have their moments where Steph is swishing trays and, you know, Draymond's, you know, running little, you know, side actions and throwing cool dishes. And, but you know, just the third piece that holds everything up and, you know, advances it into the, the ultra tesseract that it was. I don't know why I said Tesseract. I just imagined a whirly dervish machine, which made me think of the movie Hypercube, which was, a t- I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is that the Warriors are awesome when they have all their guys, and it's too bad to see that they're not. And then one other thing I want to take myself to task on, I said on Twitter earlier this year that I would have traded Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown for James Harden because the pairing of James Harden and Jason Tatum would be an unstoppable offense. And I still think that that's true in terms of them being an unstoppable offense. But with the leap that Jalen Brown is making and the fact that he and Tatum are on literally like basically the exact same timeline, there's no way that the Celtics could have made that trade. So I'm going to take myself to task for that one and say I was wrong um, because... You know, you look at Brown and Tatum, they're both two-way players. They're both getting better, you know, maybe not necessarily each year. Um, you know, there was a weird stagnation for Tatum in year two or whatever. But the point is, they're both great players right now. They're both two-way players. They play the game a little differently, but they fit really nicely together. They're young, and they're only going to get better. And the thing is, is that you want those guys on a trajectory. You want them on that five-year pairing 
And you want to take, you know, your shots at a title with an elite wing duo. And so for all the stuff I said about James Harden, offense, uh, his offensive abilities and how great that would be for them, you know, you take a look at um, the what what Jalen Brown is doing this year and, you know, you you got to love this. And again, it's not that James Harden wouldn't make them better. They would be better with Harden and Tatum right now, but it's not necessarily right now. It's about the next five years. And with Harden, it's maybe only about the next two years. And so that calculus means they were right not to get into those discussions. They were right to keep Jalen Brown. And especially given this leap he's making this year, you know, I know that the Celtics are struggling a little bit, but you know, when Marcus Smart comes back, I think they're going to figure it out. And I think they're going to be a really good team. They would be someone that I think could bump the nets earlier than we anticipate. That could be something that I see happening. Um, And so I'm going to, I'm going to call myself out on that one. Say I was wrong because Jalen Brown is just too good at this point, and he's going to be too good for too long with Tatum on the same timeline to abandon that, even if it hurts your title chances this year. And then with the way that Tatum is playing right now, I'm not actually sure it does hurt your title chances this year that much because he is a better defender than Harden really ever has been. So, and last thing I'll mention is two trade ideas I saw. One is from Esfandiar Barahenny, uh, who I follow on Twitter at just ES uh, Barahenny. Um, and essentially, he mentioned the idea of the Celtics getting DeMar DeRozan. Um, and, you know, just with the idea being that even though DeMar is a minus on defense, like their offensive struggles sometimes would be cured by just having him inserted into that, you know, the traded player exception. Maybe they need to make some financial moves. I'm not exactly sure what the cap sheet is. But, uh, and, you know, having him be just a dude who gets buckets for them when the offense breaks down a little bit. And I actually love this idea. Um, again, I know that. You know, he's a little bit of a minus on defense, but the Celtics have so much defense. I think they could cover for that. I know that a Kemba DeMar lineup might be scary, but if it's like Kemba Brown, DeMar Tatum, and then like Tice or something or, or Tristan Thompson, like I think you can get away with it. And I think that you can find a way to, you know, mix offense and defense enough to make that work so that you have just another weapon to to get buckets. And for the Spurs, I mean, DeMar DeRozan just doesn't work for them and hasn't been good with their player mix. They're so guard-heavy anyway. A lot of his net negative numbers could be related to playing with Aldridge, who is just not there. Um, I, you know, I, I, I like the trade. I think it would be really interesting. I don't think it's going to happen. It was just an idea that was floated, but I think it would be cool. And then the other thing, um, I don't know who actually floated this one. It was in an NBA group chat that I'm in. Shout out group chat. In any case, a lot of people were talking about the possibility of flipping um, Jamal Murray for Bradley Beal. And then I actually heard, the funny thing is I heard this in my NBA group chat, and then I actually heard the Ringer group chat podcast talking about the same thing, essentially saying that, um, you know, there's a lot of people talking about would the Nuggets trade Michael Porter Jr. for Bradley Beal, but a lot of people saying that, you know, instead they should just try to trade Jamal Murray for Bradley Beal because Beal and Murray are similar players. You know, it's a better fit, et cetera, et cetera. But my thing about that, I understand the logic. uh, And I think that Bradley Beal is better than Murray. But my one thing about that is you have to ask Nikola Jokic that question. Because with the way Jokic is playing, the level he's playing at as an MVP candidate, he might win it this year. Um, you just can't ignore his feelings on the subject because he's only signed for two years after this one. So I know that's three years, including this year. That seems like a lot, but we've seen train demands pop up earlier and earlier. And 
You want to be on a five-year trajectory minimum with Jokic with the way that he's playing right now. You want to be on a 10-year trajectory with Jokic. But I'm just saying you want to know that you're locked in for five years. And you're going to be looking to re-sign Bradley Beal if you trade for him. You you know, you just you want to be sure that they want to play together. Jokic, maybe, I don't know that he and Michael Porter Jr. get along so well. And so maybe trying to swap him for Beal, even if Beal, Murray, and Jokic isn't a perfect fit, if the chemistry is better, that matters. My thing is just that Jokic is so good that he's at the point that you are not wanting to be in the business of pissing him off. You want to ask him, hey, is your two-man thing with Jamal so strong that you want to go for a championship with you two? Or if we can flip him in pieces for Beal, does that make sense to you? Or do you want us to flip Michael Porter Jr.? I'm not saying Jokic should be the GM, but he needs to be very, very involved in these discussions. Because if you're going to trade a guy that he has like a lethal two-man game with, not that the two-man game with Beal and Jokic wouldn't be lethal because it would be, but if you're going to trade a guy that he has developed that chemistry with, that he is legitimately friends with, you better make sure that you goddamn know that you're on the same page because Denver is not a market that can just attract stars. It's never been that way. And, you know, Jokic was the first guy after the whole mellow thing to, you know, you know, they were doing well with George Carl. They won 50 games a few times, but it was just a, you know, high octane offense that couldn't do anything in the playoffs. They never got out of the first round. And so now that you've actually made a Western Conference Finals appearance, you're actually a threat to other teams. You have got to make sure that you keep that guy around and keep him happy. And if getting better is what makes him happy, then you trade for Beal. And if, you know, keeping Michael Porter Jr. and trading for Beal is what makes him happy, you do that. But my point is... You just don't want to be in the business of pissing off Nikola Jokic because that is a guy who changes the game for you. That is a guy who lifts your franchise higher than it's been in a very long time and who can continue to do so for a very long time with the way he plays. He could play like this for another decade easily, so there's just no way that you want to piss him off. There's no way that you want to make him disgruntled, and I just think for all of us who are sitting here talking about is Denver in the market for this trade is Denver in the market for this trade the question is how does Jokic feel about that not that it's his decision but you want to be in the Nikola Jokic business for as long as you can and you want to make him not that you know not that the Bulls always did what Jordan wanted but you don't want to make him unhappy because that contract comes up sooner than you think it does and you just don't want to be left holding the bag when you made a trade for two years of Beal and Jokic and suddenly you got neither of them. You don't want to go that way. You don't want to be in that area. So just make sure that you're all on the same page. That's my warning to the Nuggets. And that is the Blunt Doctor Show. May record another episode today actually so look out for um the new episode coming soon i'm doing a super bowl preview i'm gonna hit it really soon just wanted to cover some basketball before i got into that you know how i do it nfl nba trying to mix in more gambling talk but i keep losing i'm ice cold right now all my luck is thrown into the bucks winning the super bowl so let's go bucks let's go win the super bowl go bucks go fucking bucks man i don't know what else to say that's all i think right now Peace.